All right, church family, so this is part two of our introduction to Revelation. Um, In our first talk, we went over uh, more general features of the book of Revelation. We kind of talked through at a high level some of the things that we want to be aware of before uh, launching in. In this second talk, we're going to get a little more specific and talk about key features of the book or key characteristics of the book of Revelation. These are things that we'll want to be on the lookout for um, as we dive in. So with that being said, um, the first one I want to talk about are allusions to other passages of Scripture. Now, this is a really important one. Uh, Now, an allusion, broadly speaking, is where a biblical author references a person, place, event, or statement of an earlier book or part of redemptive history. That reference, for, for our benefit, for the original audience's benefit, is intended to call to mind the significance or relation between the person or thing in the past and the person or thing in, the, in view in the present. So we could list endless examples of allusions in the book of Revelation, but one significant example in the first chapter of Revelation is in verses 12 through 13, where John turns to see the voice that's speaking to him, and he sees one like a son of man. Now, if we know our Bibles well, we might recognize that as an allusion or reference to Daniel's vision in Daniel chapter 7, which speaks of, quote, one like a son of man, end quote, that ascends to heaven, is presented to the ancient of days, and to whom is given glory and eternal dominion over a kingdom of all nations. Right? That's significant, right? We need to get that reference to fully appreciate John's vision that follows um, in the rest of Revelation 1. But this is only the tip of the iceberg in Revelation. This is but one of countless allusions to Old Testament text. And that's why pastor and theologian Peter Lightheart says that John is, quote, writing with Scripture rather than about it. John paints an apocalypse and the Old Testament is his palette, end quote, right? So that is, that's a really key idea. In other words, John's taking his paintbrush, he's dipping it in the Old Testament, and he's using a little bit of Daniel over here, right? A little bit of Ezekiel over here, a bit of Isaiah and Zechariah over there. We might even say that one's understanding of an appreciation for Revelation will be directly proportional to one's knowledge of and familiarity with the Old Testament, Now, obviously, we can use books and other tools to help us, but drawing those connections between the Old Testament and the book of Revelation remains an essential part of understanding and rightly interpreting it. Right, so allusions are a really, really important feature in the book of Revelation. And similarly, cross-references, which are um, similar to allusions in some respects, um, there, there are these other places in Scripture that further unpack and describe um, what John is speaking about. So within Scripture, we regularly find that multiple texts in different parts of the Bible speak about the same thing, right? But one might provide some additional details or a different perspective than the others. And our understanding of whatever that person, place, or thing is will be expanded and enhanced by considering all the relevant texts. And so we want to be aware of cross-references to our various passages that are in view as um, as we study the book of Revelation. Uh, Another key feature are plot arcs 
of the vision narratives. So when we come to these different visions that John has, there's sort of a story or a narrative in play. Um, there are at times uh, conflicts that come up within that vision narrative. So it's like, hey, there's a problem here. What is the problem about? But also, what's the climax of the narrative? In other words, when it reaches its pinnacle, right, when it gets to that moment of great intensity in that vision narrative, what, what's that all about? And then how does it resolve? But similarly, what's the character's response to the action? So how do the characters in the vision or in a given narrative respond to what's said or done or what they see? For example, a great question to ask in Revelation 16 might be, how does the angel and the altar respond when God's terrible judgments are poured out? Right? That should be instructive for us. Right? We might have a certain default response when we think about God's judgments, but how does the angel and the altar respond? And then finally, what's John's response to what he sees? So we do need to pay attention to what John sees and how he describes it. But it's also interesting, right, and significant even for us to look at how he responds to the vision he has given. To go back to our example in Revelation is one, excuse me, Revelation 1, what is John's response to the vision that he's given of the Son of Man? Right? In verse 17, we're told that he fell at his feet as though dead. Right? John's not being dramatic. He's expressing the overwhelming nature of his holy encounter with the risen Christ. John wants his audience to know not only what he saw, but how he felt, how it made him feel, and he wants us to feel it with him. And that's going to be particularly important once we get to his individual messages to the seven churches. Another key feature for us in the book of Revelation, and this is important not only because of how prevalent it is, but also uh, because of how significantly it affects our interpretation of various passages, is this idea of repetition, or uh, the scholarly term is recapitulation. Pastor Jim Davis defines recapitulation as the act of summarizing and restating a narrative to give a different emphasis or perspective. Right, like So this is the literary equivalent of a Monday night football replay. So if you've watched Monday night football before, right, you can imagine your favorite team making a goal line stand trying to prevent a touchdown. And then the opposing quarterback hikes the ball. The play is run. The ref blows the whistle to end the play. But there's not a lot of clarity about whether the ball has made it across the goal line for a touchdown. So what happens? Well, a replay is shown from various camera angles to get the most clarity and the best possible understanding of what actually happened. Now, if someone has never watched Monday Night Football, it's possible they could conclude, well, these teams, they're, they're lining up to run the same exact play over and over again. This is silly. Do something different, people. Well, it's not that the event is actually happening multiple times. It's because it's being replayed multiple times from different perspectives, right? That's recapitulation. And we'll come back to the idea in just a few moments. Another feature I want to talk about are types and symbols. And again, like recapitulation, this particular feature is not unique to Revelation. But what is significant is how often we see this within the book. 
So within Revelation, there are many names, images, and numbers packed with biblical meaning and significance. Our job as readers is to recognize and identify their meaning, again, using the Old Testament as our reference guide. Now, a biblical type, that word type, means a person or thing in the Old Testament that foreshadows something in the New Testament, and most often Christ himself, right? Melchizedek, Moses, Joshua, David, Solomon, many others, even the serpent in the wilderness were all types of the person of Christ. Likewise, symbols are numbers and images that represent something metaphorically or figuratively. For example, John is told by the Son of Man in Revelation 1 that the candlesticks that he sees in his vision represent churches, And the stars represent angels, right? So those are symbols. Those those images are symbols of other spiritual realities. So symbolism is a big thing in Revelation. But you may ask the question, well, how do we know whether we should interpret something literally, you know, versus symbolically within Revelation? Maybe, Maybe you're thinking, shouldn't we always default to a literal interpretation of Scripture? And I think we can answer that question with a yes, but I would also add that it largely depends on what genre or type of biblical literature we are reading. For example, um, in the narrative of Acts, Paul says to the men of Athens in chapter 17, verse 29, he says, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone. Now you can imagine there's some wise guy in the crowd who says, well, Paul, you obviously haven't read Psalm 1831, have you? Because King David says, for who is God but the Lord and who is a rock except our God? See, your own scripture says that he is like a stone. And we might graciously say to that individual, sir, you obviously know how to read, but I'm not sure you know how to read the scriptures. You don't read or interpret poetry the same way you read or interpret narrative. Why? Because a feature of poetry is metaphor, which are images intended to be understood symbolically. Likewise, symbolism is a key feature of apocalyptic literature. And I would argue that though a literal interpretation may be our default approach to much of Scripture, when we come to apocalyptic literature in particular, a symbolic reading ought to be our default approach, particularly with the numbers and images within the book. But remember, our understanding of the symbolic meaning of those things should not be driven by our our imaginations or by current events, but rather tethered to the Old Testament meaning of those images. And that's why we need to, to know our Old Testament. I'll hit on that again and again, but we need to know our Old Testament in order to understand Revelation. Let me give us an example from the book of Revelation that combines this idea of symbolism with the idea of recapitulation, which we've already talked about. Now, we should note that the numbers 3, 4, 7, 10, and 12 are all numbers commonly seen in the book of Revelation, all representing some sense of fullness or completeness, but with with somewhat of a different emphasis. But I want to consider the numbers 10 and 12 specifically for a moment. 10 largely symbolizes or focuses on fullness from the perspective of God's sovereign rule, 
right? We, we kind of see that in the 10 plagues in Egypt, for instance, or the 10 commandments. And 12, the number 12 seems to focus on fullness or completion as it pertains to God's people. And we see this as well with the 12 tribes of Israel or 12 disciples. Now, interpreting those numbers and multiples of those numbers, literally versus symbolically, will leave us with very different conclusions, say, when we come to Revelation 7. So in the first several verses of Revelation 7, an angel speaks about the priority of all the servants of God receiving God's seal on their foreheads. And then John says in verse 4, And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Right, 12,000 from each of the different 12 tribes. Now, one way we might read this is to say, hey, God God is going to save exactly 144,000 ethnic Israelites out of a time of tribulation. Exactly 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes listed, even though, you know, tracing one's bloodlines to one of those tribes would seem pretty difficult, you know, due to intermarriage with other ethnicities throughout history and whatever. So we, we don't know exactly how that would work, but, you know, Obviously, that's a possible interpretation. But regardless, 144,000 seems like a very small, limited number. But if we were to see this 144,000 Israelites as a symbolic representation of God's people, a multiple of two twelves and three tens, right? So 12 times 12 is 144. Times 10, times 10, times 10 is 144,000. If we saw it as a multiple of two twelves and three tens, it's possible we might conclude that one of those twelves, one of those two twelves represents the fullness of God's old covenant people. One twelve represents the fullness of God's new covenant people. And the three tens represent fullness upon fullness upon fullness with an emphasis on God's sovereignty. In other words, there's this great host of both Jews, right, Old Covenant people, and Gentiles, the New Covenant people of God, right, who are included and grafted in there. So how do we know which interpretive approach to take, right, the literal or the symbolic approach? Well, let's, let's look at the text to see if we can find any help there, right? So if we go back to the text, what we, what we see is John hears, he first hears about the number of those sealed, and then he turns and sees something. Well, what does he see? Look at verse 9. After this, I looked. And behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the land, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So John hears from the angel about the protective sealing of 144,000 of the sons of Israel. Then he turns and sees an innumerable host comprised of every nation, tribe, and language, right? So that's both Jews and Gentiles, both Old and New Covenant people. And what are they doing? 
They are praising the Lamb for His salvation, for protecting and rescuing them from harm. Now, that sounds familiar to our symbolic understanding of the 144,000, right? And as if John wants to give us another hint in this direction, he tells us that this Jew-Gentile group has palm branches in their hands, right? Does that sound familiar? How about Jesus's triumphal entry into Jerusalem in John 10? If you remember, this is how the Jews were welcoming their Messiah into town, assuming it meant victory over the Romans. But the crowd that John sees in Revelation is made up of both Jews and Gentiles. But if this still seems a little far-fetched for you, right? I, I draw your attention to another brief but very similar instance of symbolism and recapitulation in Revelation 5, where John again hears one thing and sees a different thing. There he hears from one of the elders about the Lion of Judah who triumphed, and then he turns and sees what? A slain lamb? Right? We are being given different camera angles, but both are of Jesus, right? The triumphant lion and the slain lamb are one and the same person. And I would argue that in Revelation 7, the 144,000 that John hears about and the innumerable hosts that he sees are merely different camera angles of the same group of people. The same group, right? The full and final number of the redeemed people of God. So you can begin to see how both symbolism and recapitulation are very, very important features in the book of Revelation. So we've talked about a lot of different features in the book of Revelation, but just to summarize what we've talked about already, we've hit on allusions, right? We've talked about cross-references. We've talked about the plot arcs within the vision narratives. We talked about the characters' responses and even John's responses to what is seen and said. We've also discussed repetition or recapitulation and then types and symbols. All of those are extremely important features when we come to the book of Revelation. But one of the other features that we see is contrast. And we won't spend a lot of time here, but contrast is a key feature of all of John's writings. Right, if you go back to the gospel or John's three epistles, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, you see a lot of contrast between light and dark, truth and lies, love, hate, life, death, God's kingdom and Satan's kingdom. And this is certainly pronounced throughout the book of Revelation as well. But one of the more significant contrasts we see in the book of Revelation is this contrast between the Holy Trinity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and the unholy trinity of the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. So those are all key features in the book of Revelation. But before we wrap up this talk and launch into preaching and further study of the book, I want to talk just for a moment about the melodic line of Revelation. Now first, what is a melodic line, generally speaking? Where does that term come from? But second, how do we uncover the specific melodic line of the book of Revelation? Now, this idea of a melodic line is actually a musical term that refers to some kind of a foundational melody that exists in a song, an album, or a musical score. So, 
wherever the music goes, it always returns to that central melody. For example, in The Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers, uh, there's this battle of Helm's Deep. And what you hear is this dark, tense music of, of Isengard or Mordor as the forces of Saruman assault the Hornburg Castle. And then, all of a sudden, you hear the music or the theme music for the Fellowship rise above it as the camera focuses on the deeds of Legolas, Gimli, and Aragorn in battle. Right Then later in that same battle, as the diminished forces of Rowan are driven back into the fortress and nearly defeated, Aragorn and the king and a few of the remaining men decide to end it all by riding out to meet the forces of Saruman rather than hiding in the keep. But instead of being killed... Gandalf returns at first light, bringing salvation, an army of horseback riders, turning the tide and crushing the forces of Saruman. And again, as Gandalf appears at the top of the mountain, we hear the music of the fellowship, that da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. So the, the composer, Howard Shore, in that moment is seeking to emphasize the strength of the fellowship of the ring. He wants us to feel it. So despite the bleak circumstances and the great attempts of the dark enemy to overwhelm Frodo's friends and allies, Legolas, Gimli, Aragorn, Gandalf, and the rest will main, remain steadfast. Like they form this unbreakable bond and they're not going to back down or surrender. So that's an example of a melodic line in music. What about biblical literature? Well, I would define a melodic line in biblical literature as that central thread that is woven throughout an entire book and which pulls it all together. It's the central theme or redemptive purpose for the book. And this is something that would be wise for us to try to discern before diving into interpreting a specific passage within a particular book. Now, Simeon Trust is an organization that exists to help pastors and, and Bible teachers more effectively preach and teach the scriptures. And they say it like this, author and audience plus argument equals aim. In other words, when a particular author wants to communicate his heart or God's heart to the heart of a particular audience, he is reasoning from scripture and from what truth he knows about God to bring about a particular redemptive purpose or aim in his writings. And that is the melodic line. Now, there are some assessment tools that we often use to help us determine what the melodic line is of a particular book of the Bible. Uh, one of those, and this would be the easiest, um, is known as purpose statement, right? So, the Gospel of John is a good example of this. We read in John chapter 20, verses 31, you know, and these things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life in his name. So John tells us exactly why he writes that book. He wants his audience to believe in who Jesus is so that they might have life in Jesus. Now, there might be more that we could say about the melodic line of John. But certainly if the author gives us a clear purpose statement, these things are written that you might believe, it certainly gets the ball down the field in terms of helping us to uncover what the central theme or redemptive purpose of a particular book is. Uh, another tool we might use is going back to the idea of repetition or themes. So what are those repeated themes and ideas that we see emphasized throughout the book? Uh, another tool we might use is just paying attention to the macro structure or pacing 
and focus of a book. So some gospels include the birth of Christ or aspects of his childhood, while others focus entirely on his earthly ministry. So a book may tend to run through certain parts of a story, while other thoughts or pieces of the narrative are really dialed into and slowly developed. We should assume that the author, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is intentionally slowing down or focusing on certain themes or events. And then a final tool that I think is really, really important when we are looking to uncover a melodic line is called top and tail. And this is where we give special attention to kind of the end and the beginning of a book. Now, if you've ever taken a class on speed reading, one of the things you learn to do is to read the first and last sentence of each paragraph. And that actually helps you get the gist of what's being communicated in the rest of the paragraph. Um, And so obviously we don't want to speed read scriptures, but looking at the introductory and concluding paragraph or chapter of a particular book can at times help us uncover what those most central elements are to the author's intent. So I want to just take a couple minutes now to see if maybe we can make some progress toward trying to figure out exactly what the melodic line is uh, in the book of Revelation. Now, John doesn't offer us a clear purpose statement in this book. So maybe, maybe let's look at a couple of the other assessment tools to see if we can start to uncover Uh, what that redemptive purpose is, um, and what God is after through the Apostle John. Uh, The first one I want to look at is that idea of top and tail. Um, So if we were to look at Revelation 1 through 3 and Revelation 22 side by side, what we find is there's actually a lot of similar language that forms some bookends for the book of Revelation. Now I'm going to move through these quickly so that we don't get bogged down. But in Revelation 1, verse 1, we see um, that John writes, to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He, that is God, made it known by sending his angel. Revelation 22, 6, God sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. Back to Revelation 1. In verse 1, we read about the testimony of Jesus. And then in Revelation twenty-two sixteen. We see I, Jesus, testify. It's the same Greek word. Testimony and testify both come from the Greek word martyreo. Revelation 1.3, we read that blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear and keep what is written in it. And then in Revelation 22.7 and 14, blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book and blessed are they who do his commandments. Revelation 1, 8, and 11, I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. And then in Revelation 22, 13, I am the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Then in Revelation 3, we hear, I am coming soon. And then in Revelation 22, verses 7 and verse 12 and verse 20, Jesus says through John, I am coming soon. I am coming soon. I am coming soon. He says it three times. So there's a lot of repeated language at the beginning and end of the book, and that's really helpful in in helping us to start to discern what the melodic line is. But how about repetition, right? And again, we're not just talking about repeated words, but also repeated images. What we see here uh, in terms of repetition helps to confirm quite a bit of what we already saw in top and tail. So we see the word blessed used about seven times. 
We see the word hear or heard used about 46 times. Behold or look is used about 30 times. The word overcome or conquer is used about 17 times in Revelation. We see talk about a a book or a scroll at multiple points in the book of Revelation. We see a lot of language about worship or singing. We see the word lamb used about 28 times in the book of Revelation. Judgment is also a very popular theme in the book of Revelation. I don't have an exact number for us, but it's talked about a lot, and I would say it's a major theme of the book. We also see faithful endurance about six times in the book. Uh, The idea of the kingdom is mentioned about seven times. Uh, Nations or peoples, that idea is seen 40-something times in the book of Revelation, one or the other. And then there's this real strong emphasis in the book of Revelation on the throne of God, him being Lord over all, him being ruler over all creation, all of human history. We see the idea of the throne about 47 times in the book of Revelation. All that's helpful in helping us to discern the melodic line. And then finally, I just want to look at briefly at the macro structure of the book. Because again, like we said before, the pacing or the emphasis of a particular author as he is writing helps us to discern his main point, what the redemptive purpose of the book is. So as far as the macro structure of the book is concerned, if you remember from our first talk, it really centers around these three grand visions or appearances of Jesus Christ. So you have this vision of Jesus in chapter 1, verse 9 through 20, and you see how that relates to chapter 1, verse 21 through chapter 3, verse 22. And then you have another vision of Jesus in chapters 4 and 5, and you see how that relates to what we see in chapters 6 through chapter 19, verse 10. And then you have this final appearance of Jesus in chapter 19, verses 11 through 20. And you see how that relates to what we see in chapters 20 through 22. Each of these is emphasizing the sovereign rule and reign of Christ, but in a different way. So chapters 1 through 3, their emphasis on Jesus as the Son of Man who is speaking to and walking among his churches. In chapters 4 through the beginning of chapter 19, the emphasis on Jesus as the conquering lion slain lamb who brings judgment to the whole earth and to human history. And then in the second part of chapter 19 through the end of chapter 22, the emphasis on Jesus as the victorious king who returns and ushers in his eternal kingdom. So where does that leave us then as far as the melodic line is concerned? Do we have any idea of what it might be at this point? Now the reality is you talk to 10 different scholars and you'll probably get 10 at least slightly different answers as far as the melodic line is concerned. But from what I've seen, from what I've read, from what I've studied here, uh, I feel like Michael Lawrence does the best job in terms of taking a stab at it. And this is his melodic line. His melodic line for the book of Revelation is this, an exalted Christ calls an embattled church to an enduring victory and an eternal kingdom. Now, one thing I will say about this, it does in a sense, miss a little bit of the idea of faith and union with Christ uh, by faith in his work. Um, And so I do think that that would be helpful to include. We do read in chapter 12, verse 11, and they've conquered him, right? That is 
the devil by the blood of the lamb and the word of it, their testimony for they love not their lives even to death. And so if an exalted Christ is calling an embattled church to an enduring victory, how is he doing that? And I would say, and I believe that John is saying in the book of Revelation, that God does this through our faith in the risen Christ, who is the son of man, the slain lamb and the victorious king. So then I might adjust our melodic line a little bit. To borrow from Michael Lawrence, I would say an exalted Christ calls an embattled church to an enduring victory and an eternal kingdom. But then maybe we ought to add as well that he does this through exclusive faith in his effective work. And when we talk about the work of Christ, we're not just talking about his work as the slain lamb, right? We're also talking about his work as the ruling and reigning son of man, his work as the victorious king who defeats his enemies and ushers in his kingdom. And I think honestly that according to John in Revelation, it's faith in each of these aspects of Christ's work that really sustains our faith, sustains the faith of all of God's servants in the midst of trials and tribulations uh, until the return of Christ. So one final thing to say about the melodic line is this. We may not find all the notes of that melodic line in every given passage, right? Meaning that there may be certain texts that we come to within the book that might emphasize only certain notes or just prepare us for certain notes. But certainly the melodic line, as well as all the other key features that we've talked about, understanding these things will certainly help us to be better prepared for studying and, and rightly interpreting the book of Revelation. And we hope that this material will serve you and help us as a church to better see, one, the beautiful interconnectedness of Revelation with the rest of Scripture, as well as, two, to grasp and appreciate what God for, has for us in this wonderful book as we jump in. We look forward to studying it together with you.